Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ronin Rabbit Podcast, a Usagi Ojimbo fan podcast. I'm your host, Ed Moore, and be aware there will be spoilers. Now, you can tweet me at Teal, T-E-A-L Productions. I post these episodes when they go live on Facebook on the Usagi Ojimbo Dojo Facebook page, bigtimenoise.com slash Rabbit. Ronin Rabbit's one word, and Usagi Podcast, also one word, at gmail.com is the email address. Now, those are all the ways that you can get in touch with me um, before or after listening to an episode, should you uh, feel the need to. Otherwise, you can spend the next, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes listening as I talk about Usagi Ojimbo Volume 4, Issue 2 from IDW. This is the new volume that has started up. Coverage dated July 2019. And this is the second part of the Banraku story. Now, there will be uh, a couple other stories that I talk about later on in the episode, but this is the primary focus for this episode. Our dramatis personae include Miyamoto Usagi. He's our protagonist, for those of you that may be new to the show. New to the book, perhaps. Uh, Sasuke, who is the gentleman that Usagi is traveling with here these first couple episodes, uh, first couple issues, excuse me. And Takage, that is our... Uh, the bad guy, the antagonist, as you will. Now, a couple observations uh, for the first eight pages of this story. First, I think that the effect of this segment of the story would have been heightened if the book had been in black and white. I think that part of what this is intended to convey is a feeling of menace or a feeling of dread or darkness, Um you know, per- perhaps evil, all of those negative kind of, of things that will occur in a in a story, particularly in a story about demons and a demon hunter. I mean, come on, you've, you've got to have bad guys, right? And the color, and particularly the palette, is much um, happier, much more positive than, than I think it could have been. Now, I understand that the, the book has gone to color. And it, it's not going to make sense to have segments that are, you know, this and that. But this is this is just one of the uh, observations that I personally have concerning color and black and white. I, there, there are times and places for both. And more menacing stories, I think, are always benefited, almost always, by being in black and white to me. Now, that having been said, the first eight pages of the story also, my second big observation of this... Uh, follows a gentleman whom I, I've searched over two or three times, and we we never find out his name. But yet, for a third, uh, for a quarter to a third of the story, he is our protagonist, and he is in the story only to die. And that is, um, in effect, propelling the story forward. So I, I understand that. I, I don't have issues with that. But it's curious that that much time was spent here, and it very much puts me in a, rather than a sequential art, quote-unquote, comic book mood, in a theatrical mood. Because, you know, a, a movie that would start out like this, who cares how much time it takes? Because a movie you have, you know, I don't know, nowadays you have an hour and a half to two hours. So spending 5, 10, 15 minutes with this person as they progress through the story uh, to never show up again would very quickly be forgotten. So I think it's it's a very cinematic um, technique that Mr. Sakai is using. But we open 
uh, viewing the village from across the river. And we zoom in to a particular building. We zoom in to the window of the building, which is covered with sheets. But we hear laughing behind it. And then we are in to the building, which turns out to be a great room or a common room for an inn. Or perhaps it's just a bar. Uh, but I believe in this time period, more than likely it would be an inn. And this is the common room. Much merriment and drinking and eating. And we have our current protagonist talking with a friend of his who is named. And his name is Hasu. But our protagonist has consumed enough sake that he must now go and make room for more. So he exits the building. No, I'm sorry. He, he is going to his quarters. So this is just a bar. Uh, so he gets up and leaves, and as he's walking out into the street and through the street, he notices several things. Uh, what a dark, moonless night, which I'll address here in a little bit. Uh, Mr. Sakai gives us the term oborozuke, which uh, is translated as hazy moon, and that most often occurs in the spring. It's a spring night when the moon is, is slightly covered. And it is the time that um, uh, that, that situation uh, by folklore allows evil to walk the earth. I guess because the light of the moon is obscured, so there's not as much light. It's darker, allowing access to, um, without being all parapsychological, uh, access to our dimension from darker dimensions because it's darker here. Yeah, you, you understand what it is. But hazy moon is what that translates to. Uh, and our... Samurai here, I, I apologize for not mentioning that. He and Hasu are samurai uh, bodyguards for hire. And then he starts complaining about how cold it is. Notices perhaps a sound or something behind him, so he stops and turns. And there's no one there. He thinks perhaps it's his buddy Hasu that he just left at the bar, but it's not. He continues walking, um, talking out loud quite a bit uh, to me, I think. any Anybody passing by or within earshot... Um, he would be drawing attention to himself because he is very plainly talking out loud. And then several panels of him talking and, and walking on to whatever his destination is. We see in one panel here, there's a, a side street that he passes. And at the angle Mr. Sakai has drawn for us, we see someone uh, crouched against the wall, uh, about to peer out around the wall to this samurai as he is walking away down a cross street. And then we see the individual who is watching, we see them move as if to move with the way things are set up to move closer to the samurai, potentially behind him. So this is, uh, it, it definitely comes across as something nefarious is going to occur. Again, the samurai stops because he heard something and we clearly see that there is movement because the camera is in front of the samurai looking towards his face and we see back over his shoulder a shadow uh, go across one of the cross streets that the samurai has passed. But he continues walking and then as he's coming up to the next cross street, we see a sword that has been drawn. We don't see what's attached to it. We just see it highlighted against the building as the samurai is coming up towards that cross street. Spooked enough, the samurai has heard enough, he draws his sword. Uh, suddenly he's attacked by six individuals, and we see what appear to be the little puppets from the 
Bonraku show. Uh, and they all have knives and very sharp pointy teeth, kind of like the rabbit from the Monty Python. No, never mind. Sorry. Um, they attack the samurai, biting him, poking him repeatedly with their small swords, which, if done enough, will, will cause enough damage to bring the samurai down. Ultimately, they dogpile on him, bearing him down. We see Takage approaching with another one of the little puppets. And as they approach the samurai who has been injured enough that the other puppets have left him and he's just laying here on the roadway pleading for help, Tukage walks up to him, grabs him, looks him in the eye, pulls his face closer so that they are now nose to nose, staring each other in the eyes. And the next panel, we see the sun coming up. Usagi and Takage, Usagi and Takage are walking and they walk upon a crowd Making their way through the crowd, they see that people have gathered around the samurai who is laying on the roadway looking like a desiccated husk, much as if all the uh, life liquid, shall we say, all the juice had been sucked out of him, and he is he is just a husk. Usage, uh, Usagi, excuse me, the... Sasuke and Usage, Usagi words are, are scrambling in my head here as I try to keep them straight. I apologize. Uh, Usagi says that uh, it's a husk of a person. He's never really seen anything like this, and he is, uh, he is taken aback. It, it is not a, a pleasant or even something that he really wants to entertain as far as seeing. So he's, he's kind of pulling away. Whereas Sasuke seems nonplussed. He's just seen it before. Um, and as they're looking over the body, Sasuke notices that uh, there are cuts all over the legs and lower torso, but the upper portion of his body didn't seem to be touched. And at that point, Usagi uh, looks hard enough at the corpse and registers and says, wow, you're, you're correct. It's as if he was attacked by, by children, Usagi says. <laughs> and Sasuke says, it's something much more sinister. And Usagi looks at him and says, more sinister than children? Which... Out of context is very funny. Uh, having raised two of my own, uh, children can be quite sinister uh, for, for those of you that may not be aware. So uh, in context, it's it's funny, but out of context, it's very funny, that little exchange. So uh, Mr. Sakai perhaps writing double duty there as far as, as what he intended. The authorities come, and rather than being caught up and answering a whole bunch of questions, uh, Sasuke encourages Usagi to leave. Now, this is a little difficult for Usagi because being the morally upstanding person that he is, of course, he feels that his, um, his job to stay and give whatever information he has. But Sasuke, um, much more an in-the-shadows type person, uh, life, really, uh, it says, no, uh, let's go. And, and he convinces Usagi to leave as well. Later, they show up at the Bunraku show. Uh, they continue watching the story that had uh, paused the day before. This is the continuation of that story. And Usagi is, is noticing some things, how lifelike the movements of the puppets are, despite the fact that they're being controlled by other people. He's watching Takage and notices that Takage turns and um, apparently looks at Usage, Usagi, excuse me, and Sasuke, 
sitting together, but of course that shouldn't be possible because Takagi is blind. But as Usagi is watching, we see the white orbs that indicate blindness slowly be replaced by colored pupils, which one would assume means that he gains his vision as Usagi is sitting there watching him. And indeed, he is staring not at Usagi, but at Sasuke, because Sasuke this entire time has been staring directly at Takage, and Takage apparently um, felt it. If if you know we we want to go there, we we always uh, talk about feeling like someone is watching us, and perhaps that's what happened with Takage. After here in a little bit, we find out a little bit more about Takage, and maybe it's not that he sensed that. Sasuke was watching, but he sensed Sasuke, period, because of what Sasuke is and what he does. So, um, ultimately, Usagi and Sasuke leave the Bunraku play, and they start talking about Takage. The conversation goes to Sasuke, who, uh, on into the conversation, says he drains the life of others to extend his own. But there is more to it than just him, something even more evil. And again, Usagi stops and says, more evil? It, you know, it's, it's almost like there's a portion of Usagi that is the uh, comedy relief in this. Uh, Sasuke is the straight man uh, who would make him, what, uh, Dean Martin? And Usagi would be Bob Hope? Is, is that the correct reference, Bob Hope? And was it Dean Martin in the series of movies uh, going to or something like that. Anyways, yeah, I'm, I'm old, but not old enough to really remember those movies too well. So Sasuke continues telling Usagi his thoughts. Um, again, we, we keep in mind that Sasuke is a demon hunter. So if he is suspicious of someone, it can only mean bad things about that person. Time shift. Later that night, Usagi and Sasuke are outside the back uh, portion of the Bonraku stage, or or the stage itself. I don't know if this Bonraku is a traveling troop or if they're stationed here permanently. But here we see Usagi drops the word Oborozuke and says the moonless night when evil walks the earth. It's cold, so it's it's colder than it should be. There's a hazy moon out, uh, which often occurs in the springtime, so perhaps that's giving us kind of a uh, seasonal setting for when this story is taking place, wherever it's taking place. It's the uh, spring of the year, perhaps. Um, I may be reading a little bit too much into it, but for what it's worth, perhaps. We see a the, the small back door slide open and Takage steps out. And again, I, I keep dropping that name. Takage is the narrator for the play. Uh, the owner of the Bonraku puppets, uh, the person who employs and pays the human troop that animates the puppets. He's he's the in-charge dude for the Bonraku troop. So he steps out and he looks around. Then he knocks on the, the side of the wall and out step several children, Usagi says. And then Sasuke's like, just kind of looks at Usagi like, a what? Children? And he says, look again. And Usagi says, it, it can't be. And it turns out that it's all of the puppets that they have been watching the puppet show, only they're, they're animated of their own. They're, they're running around. They're not being uh, controlled by human controllers. So they all leave two, four, six puppets. 
And interestingly enough, Takage is in the front, but there's a seventh puppet that is next to him up front, uh, which makes one believe that this puppet is of a higher rank than the rest of the puppets because it's out in front. So I uh, just filed that away here for a couple minutes. Sasuke and Usagi go into the um, the puppet theater through the back door that Takage and group just left open. But as they step inside, it's it's pitch black. There are no lamps lit. Uh, the moon is obscured, so it's 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 black, pitch black. And then Sasuke says, "Oh, forgive me, I forgot. You cannot see in the shadows." And he conjures up this sphere of light and sets it loose. Uh, Usage, of course, is appropriately uh, marvelled by this. But Sasuke tells him, come on, let's let's go this way and look around. Now, as they're walking around, I would assume that this sphere of light is also following them. Uh, it's, it's floating, but as they continue on their investigation of the building, Usagi continually is able to see, uh, which would lead one to believe that it continues to be lighted. But this is the only time Sasuke does anything with his... Uh, whatever it would be, magic, I guess, uh, in in making a light. So I would assume this one now floats and starts following them around. They step into one back room and they see all of the human uh, workers of the puppets laying here neatly in a row, all asleep. But upon further investigation, they determine that these are wooden puppets. They're not people at all. So the puppets that they saw during the day are now running around animated, and the humans controlling the puppets that they had seen during the day are wooden puppets laying here motionless at night, inanimate. Sasuke has seen all he needs to see. Uh, He, in a run, leads Usagi out of the theater, down the street, uh, in an attempt to now try to locate this group of puppets and Takage that they had seen leave earlier. We don't know how much time. Um, they, they, it didn't take them very long to investigate the building, so it's only been you know just a handful of minutes. But then they hear someone cry out. It helps them find exactly where it is they need to go. Usagi yells this way because he is closest to that road, and so he takes the lead running down the, the next roadway. He says, I hear movement ahead. And they encounter Takage, once again, nose to nose, holding someone, this person, in the throes of being desiccated. And off to the side is this little pointy-toothed, very evil-looking puppet that was running alongside Takage when the entire group left the theater earlier on. And then we're left with a splash page, which is the cover of issue three coming out the next month. And so that ends issue two of the uh, volume four Usagi book. Uh, Bunraku, uh, we we have, I I believe they threw out that word several times. That's the traditional puppet theater that is really the background for this whole story. And Oborozuke, which translates roughly to hazy moon. uh, Those are a couple of the words that Mr. Sakai gave us this issue that we haven't really seen before, although Bunraku we have. The Hazy Moon Oborozuke, I don't think we have, but we may have early on because uh, Usage has, Usagi, excuse me, has met with um, uh, evil, dark, yokai, demon creatures, you know, several times. So perhaps we have seen that word, but off the top of my head, I don't remember that we have. All right, next up, I want to talk about 
a couple of the stories from the Usagi Yojimbo Dojo 35th Anniversary Special Tribute Book that was put out earlier this year. And this is the second of five installments uh, where I will be talking about the stories that were submitted and published as part of this. The first, Whatever Works, was by Connor Naylor. And I probably last episode neglected to do this, but each creator has um, kind of a, it's not really a bio, it's more a my thoughts or a get to know me kind of thing that apparently they submitted because all of them sound to be in, in their, um, in their own words. So this is, as I said, Connor Naylor. He turns out to be from Vancouver, Canada or thereabouts. He says, uh, he does do some illustrating, but most of his life is learning to educate. And that's, that's really, I mean, we don't really get a whole lot of background, just kind of his words about why uh, Usagi is is relevant to him and why, in turn, he chose to submit a, a work to this publication. As Mr. Naylor's story opens, we have a panel that shows a forested uh, scene, a vista, some mountains in the background, some birds flying. But for us here in the foreground of this panel, are several word balloons elevated above the trees. And we can't really make out the words, but what we can see is the path that whoever is making these sounds is is working its way across this particular mount, a mountain path. Next panel, we zoom in. We see four individuals. One is several paces ahead of the other three. The other three are two larger, sterner-looking individuals holding, uh, perhaps carrying off the ground, a third individual. And the third individual seems to be in much distress, as there are three word balloons here, all with the word help in them. This person is yelling out. Next panel, continuing, we zoom in a little bit more, where the, the camera is looking over the shoulder of that lead person back towards the faces, the fronts of the three individuals behind and we see that the two on either side are samurai, one with a um, holstered sword. Holstered? Is that the right word? Ah, I don't know. And the other holding his sword, both of them carrying this individual because we can see that the feet are swinging. So they're holding this individual up off the ground because, um, because they can go faster that way or perhaps because the person doesn't want to walk or something like that. Uh, my impression at this point is that it's a female a child, uh, because again, she screams, anybody help me, please. And one of the samurai say, keep screaming all you want, kid. No one can hear you now. So we, we turn the page and suddenly the lead person turns around. His name is Nizumi. He draws a short sword and threatens this young person that is now we see named Kiku. Uh, the main bad guy, Nezume, appears to be an anthropomorphic mm, rat, perhaps. And Kiku appears to be an anthropomorphic mm, lamb, let's say. And then the samurai on either side appear to be, I don't know, maybe a really, really large, thick dog. I'm not sure if it's a dog. And then the other is maybe some sort of feline cat or a fox, something like that. And... Uh, they are taking Kiku somewhere against her will. And again, I'm, I'm going to assume, I believe, that it's a she, Kiku. Um, so they, 
Nizumi threatens, Kiku is quiet, and as they turn to go, we hear something from behind everyone, and as we turn, we see that it is Ushimaro, who is an anthropomorphic bull, and Nizume is quite upset that this individual, Ishimaru, has found them. He grabs up Kiku and tells his two underlings to handle this as he will continue on their journey uh, wherever they're going. And as the fight ensues between our two, uh, shall we say, kidnapping samurai and Ishimaru uh, starts, Nizume takes Kiku into the into the woods, off to the side of the path, so he doesn't continue on their journey confident that they'll be able to handle this um, other guy. He kind of hides because he's unsure. So the fight progresses, and we see some back and forth between the two uh, against the one of Ishimaru. Ultimately, the uh, lead bad guy here, Nezume, throws a rock, which hits Ishimaru in the head, uh, kind of stuns him, allows the other two samurai to gain the upper hand. But just as they're about to dispatch Ishimaru, he recovers, kills them both, kills, and then turns his attention to Nezumi, who uh, attempts to plead for his life, letting Kiku go. Kiku runs into the arms of Ishimaru as her uh, savior, and then Nezume attempts to run away. Kiku picks up a rock and uh, very accurately throws and hits Nezume in the head, knocking him out. And that is the end, basically, of, of those three bad guys. The next five panels are about Kiku and, Ishi and Ushimaru as... Um, she finds that this is not someone sent by her father, but just a uh, bounty hunter who was looking for Nezume. And losing confidence in her savior, she starts once again yelling for help as he is attempting to tell her that he will be more than happy to you know, guide her to wherever it is that she belongs, to take her back home. But she'll have none of it. She feels that she is still in danger and just keeps yelling for help as he keeps trying to explain that he will help. And that's where the story ends. Our second, or our second for uh, this episode, the fourth story overall in the book, Wondrous, is by Randy Clute. And looking at his bio here, uh, Randy tells us that he is from a small town in Texas. And again, he gives some background about how he first came across Usagi and why Usagi has been important to him, important enough to also submit a creation to this book. Now, here we open with uh, three panels, three small panels side by side. They, the Three tick up about a third of the page. Uh, a very well-drawn owl hiding, or not hiding, but just kind of hanging out in some branches in a tree. Very cool. Um, a small rabbit running and then pulling up short as he sees a scene of a cat-like person with a tree branch, a, a piece of wood here, saying, Now, are you ready to hand over the cash or do I have to take it? And then the person down on the ground we see is holding a bag of, of money and says, no, no, please, Huff, I can't take any more. Cuff, cuff, you, you can have the money. And this is witnessed by this young rabbit who uh, sees a rock beside him. And just as this upright person is about to thrash the person laying on the ground, 
the rabbit throws the rock, hits him in the head. Seems to be a theme here with these two stories. And when this um, cat regains his his uh, uh, conscious, he, he regains his, his mind, he regains, I'm sorry, the words are just not coming right now, um, his attention, well, he notices that the individual that he was about to thrash is now gone. And so he's quite upset explaining how uh, he won't be able to get his money back, the money he's been saving for months, uh, the money he was going to give to the priest to heal his daughter. Now she's going to die because he doesn't have money. And this young rabbit realizes that hmm, he picked the wrong side of that particular battle. Uh, this was an individual attempting to get back the money that had been uh, stolen by some road brigand. And he was on the verge of doing that until this young rabbit interfered with that. Now, we see, well, no, I'll wait. As he's walking through the woods, the rabbit is met by a kudan, which we are told is a wish-granting bull with a man's face. Um, it immediately puts me in mind, to some extent, f to the man-eating cow from Tick, but not. The man-eating cow just looked like a cow. It didn't have this uh, face on it, but it, it just it put me in mind of that. And the young rabbit screams out, yokai. And he says, well, yeah, I, I guess I am a yokai, but I'm not the bad kind. I'm, I'm a good kind. As a matter of fact, I grant wishes. What do you want? And so the young rabbit thinks, he's, and he's very upset about what had just transpired. And he says, well, frankly, I wish I was never born. And the kudan is kind of taken aback. He's you know, tries to explain to him why that's not a good idea, but then he stops and says, well, I'll tell you what, before we do anything, let me show you what that would be like, and then you can decide if that's what you want. So we go back, and uh, turns out that this young rabbit is a magistrate's, uh, was going to be a magistrate's son, but there was a miscarriage. So the magistrate never had any children. The magistrate, it turns out, is Kenichi, uh, the young one's mother turns out to be Mariko, which means that this young rabbit would be Jotaro. And he tells the the uh, playback of If You Hadn't Been Born shows Usagi coming back to the village uh, right after Jotaro's birth, which we have seen in the first volume of Usagi, I believe. We saw that. And um, Kenichi hires Usagi to be his Yojimbo. So then the story progresses that uh, Usagi's doing his job. Now, Mariko is a former um, paramour of Usagi's. And again, I apologize. That may not be the best word for it. Girlfriend. It's, he wasn't really a girlfriend. Um, love, attention. Yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly what the... the they, they had a, a childhood-like uh, affair, let's say. Uh, and, and on into their young adulthood. Kenichi uh, was a rival. With Usagi out of the picture, Kenichi became the primary love interest uh, to the extent that he and Mariko married. And in Usagi's book, had a child, Jotaro, who that's what this is. But we're imagining now a world where that all hadn't, where Jotaro hadn't been born, but the rest of that had happened. And as Kenichi is getting more and more suspicious of Usagi and Mariko's uh, affections, one night as he's spying on him, he is captured. When Usagi finds out that Kenichi has disappeared because he has been captured, Usagi kills himself as a way to regain his honor, 
having been Kenichi's Yojimbo, his bodyguard, and having failed at that. We see that Kenichi was, in fact, kidnapped by the Mogura Moles, who ultimately kill him. And at that point, uh, Jitaro tells the um, Kudan to stop. And he's like, okay, okay, I, I, I get your point. And then he asks, now, knowing all that, what, what do you want? And Jitaro thinks for a minute, and he says, health. For the man's daughter, the at the beginning of the story, the man who he hit in the head with a rock. And the Kudan says, very good. Done. And after that, Usagi or uh, Jitaro thanks him and runs off into the woods. And we see him meeting up with Usagi, who has been looking for him because he ran off and had disappeared uh, for a short period of time. And, and Usagi was looking for him. So there uh, we have... Um, Mr. Sakai gave us the words kudan, which, I'm, again, I believe is the first time we've seen that word. Uh, a wish-granting bull with a man's face, we're told by Mr. Clute. Uh, yokai, and the word, which is uh, uh, many things. that People use it for ghoul, for demon, for ghosts, for, you know, and we have seen many, many yokai uh, as part of the folklore that Usagi encounters in his travels. And I'm sure we will see many more. And the word yojimbo, which is bodyguard. Oddly enough, hey, that's the title of our primary comic book, Usagi Yojimbo. For those of you that may be new, kind of gives you a little idea of perhaps what Usagi is about, if you don't already know. Um, also, we have Miyamoto Usagi. We also have Jitaro, Mariko, and Kenichi that were in that story, which is really cool. The, the first three stories have been takes on Usagi. This particular story, oh, and the uh, Mogura Ninja Clan, which is one of uh, three clans that, that we have run into so far. And it, this story, though, uh, Mr. Clute, I believe it's a Mr. R-A-N-D-Y is the name. Uh, the creator, the author, I'll say that, um, uses a portion of the Usaki story that we have already seen and kind of inserts uh, something into that. Not really a retcon, but just kind of a, an expansion of... Uh, an aspect of, of the story that we've already seen. So that's everything for me this episode. A bit longer than they normally will run. The next three episodes will probably run this long as I want to talk about each new issue. And then two of the stories in this tribute book. Ten stories total. I've talked about four. So that's six more stories, three more episodes of coverage. With all that being said, thanks for listening in, guys. I know it's a bit rough. Uh, today is just one of those days. Hopefully it wasn't too bad for you. I'll talk to you again next time, talking about issue three of the new Usagi Yojimbo volume. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The Ronin Rabbit Podcast is a Teal production, and as such, is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, non-derivatives, 3.0, unported license.